Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the Horrid Halls of Academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. And we are back. It is 2020. We did our recap of the last decade, last episode, and now we are here to talk about a film from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, happy uh, Happy Women in Horror Month. Happy Women in Horror Month. Happy Black History mm-hmm, Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about a film that has almost nothing to do with either of those yep. things. But, uh, but I, no regrets. Hmm. I've no. been meaning to talk about it. I've been meaning to rewatch it. I really enjoy this film. Yeah. And, I mean, we picked seven, as we alluded to in our last episode, because we are entering our seventh year as a podcast. Mm-hmm. So isn't that kind of fun? Mm-hmm. And this is a film I've always had in my brain as it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good movie with some interesting stuff in it, and that's cool. And I haven't gone back to it in a few years, and watching it this time is the most I've ever enjoyed this film. Yeah. And maybe it's because I put on my like analytical hat, the literal hat I wear when I watch these films, but I was like, oh shit, there is... So much beyond it, because I think once you get past the conceit, mm-hmm. the like top line conceit of what this film is about, mm-hmm. it actually has so much to say about humanity, about narrative, about stylistic choices. And it really like I've been really ruminating on this film um, all week. So it's I'm very excited to dig into it in a really significant way. Mm-hmm. I feel like it came out. It came out in 1995. And that was like it's kind of within this glut of 90s police procedural thrillers, right? Like I'm thinking of Along Came a Spider, Kiss the Girls. I remember enjoying most of them and enjoying Seven alongside of them, but they all kind of just bled together as, you know, just like just like a really good episode of Law and Order, which nothing wrong with that. No. But I didn't realize there was quite so much going on behind the scenes as when I dug in for this episode. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, as we talk about David Fincher's uh, 1995 film Seven, which we are today, to me, it's kind of the next evolution of the whole horror, thriller, police procedural mm-hmm. that started with Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some knockoffs of that. And then I think the next kind of zeitgeist moment you have in this subgenre is seven. And then, Andrea, like as you were saying, there are so many knockoffs, especially mm-hmm. having Morgan Freeman mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. A, a wise old detective. Mm-hmm. But but this just, it, it has an edge to it. Yeah. And it has an unrelenting quality on many levels that keep it at the forefront of our collective conscious and you know it gets brought up a fair bit it it gets referenced a lot Um, there's you know not only knockoffs of the structure of it but also in the style of it Mm -hmm. you know did you know that you needed a remix of Nine Inch Nails to open your film I now you do I could have (laughs) guessed all right well uh, let's get into it 1995 this is David Fincher's second film Mm mm-hmm uh, I have that he got divorced the same year, so I think uh, oh. I think it might have been tough. <laughs> I think it might have been real tough. And and he's uh, he's someone we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Uh-huh. From uh, we did obviously Alien, Alien Three, yeah. uh, we did Zodiac, uh-huh. and now we're doing Seven. Uh-huh. And he's um, the Trifinchta. <laughs> He's such an interesting filmmaker. He is so precise. I've mentioned this before, probably in the Zodiac episode, that I think he's best when he has a really good script yep. and the amount of fighting that had to go on to get the script shot. I know. Um, as is, because 
the Hollywood lore is David Fincher uh, had sworn off filmmaking, had sworn off doing anything like this again because Alien 3 was such a bad experience. And then uh, they'd work their way through people like David Cronenberg, Guillermo del Toro to direct this. And it got to Fincher and they sent him the wrong version of the script. Yep. Which is great because it included the film's... Apparently, Dante is a Hollywood producer and doesn't want us to talk about the original ending. Shut up! Head in the box. Head in the box. That's where that came from. What a happy accident. And he loved it. And from what I understand, he, you know, he did, he fought for for that ending to be included in Seven, as you said, but he also had the film's stars, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, behind him 100%. They all fought for that ending, which is, uh, which is cool. It's nice when uh, when a film is good and you know people made sure it was good. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't just collect their paycheck and walk away. And we'll we'll talk about the alt endings to Seven that were either written or storyboarded as we get to talk about the ending later on mm-hmm. in this episode because holy shit, guys. Yeah. But um, it's it's the only way this film could have ended. That's right. I agree. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. This is 1995's Seven. You like what you do for a living? These things you see? You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going to come inside five years. Not here. Now, we have ourselves a homicide. They're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. We're going to get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy's methodical, exacting, Worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. <laughs> he had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Hey! Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. In an undisclosed American city, two detectives are on the hunt for a serial killer whose grisly murders correspond with the Christian seven deadly sins. An obese man is force-fed to death to represent gluttony. A lawyer extracts a pound of his own flesh for greed, etc. The elder detective, Somerset, is on the verge of retirement and is exhausted from a career of bottling up his emotions and his horror, while his partner, Mills, is an ambitious 
hot-headed and, frankly, pretty crude guy. As the investigation closes in, the suspect, John Doe, suddenly appears at the station to turn himself in, even though he's only completed five of the seven sins. He agrees to plead guilty to the murders on one condition, that Somerset and Mills accompany him to a remote location in the desert. When they arrive, Somerset intercepts a delivery man while John Doe explains that he's committed the sin of envy and that this prompted him to murder Mills' pregnant wife, whose head is in the box that's being delivered. Before Somerset can stop him, Mills executes Doe, representing the sin of wrath and completing Doe's diabolical plan. Oof! Yeah. Oof. Yeah. This movie is designed to stick your head in a box. Yeah. It's it's designed to make you kind of question almost everything we know about, you know, Western culture, our own way of life, everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and it's, it, it's such a dark film. Mm-hmm. Also... Literally, as you know, yes. this, this anonymous city is surrounded by almost a permanent rainfall oh. uh, through most of the film, um, and, and grime and grime. It's dirty. Mm-hmm. It's scary. It's corrupt. It's um, noisy. It's violent. There's violence happening behind the scenes, like in the background at all times, always. And you know, we encounter Somerset when he is on the scene of another horrific crime Mm -hmm. and he's asking questions about who saw what did the kids see anything Mm -hmm. and he's basically told to shut up yeah why do you always ask stuff like that somerset and he's a really interesting character i think he's um as i said i feel like he's kind of typified for he he's taken this all in like a career of fighting crime in this horrible horrible city has just worn him down and worn him down and yet you still get the sense that he gives fucks gives a lot of fucks, but he's tired of giving fucks. Mm -hmm. It's kind of retirement, but it's also kind of – you get the sense that he's leaving, that that the station would prefer to keep him on, but he's done. Oh, he's very done. And I think it's amplified even more by, of course, the almost – stereotypical introduction of a young, hot-headed cop like Mills. You know, I think Brad Pitt gives a really rather fun performance Mm -hmm. for this film because he's so Mm -hmm. bro-y and he's kind of like a shitty guy, but you can tell he was like the hunk of his high school. Oh, yeah. And he really carries that with him and his own kind of exuberance and, as you mentioned, hot-headedness is what kind of amplifies Somerset's own knowledge and care and exhaustion. Mm-hmm. If Somerset can't fathom why anyone would want to come here and do this job, mm-hmm. whereas Mills seems so desperate to prove himself yeah. um, in some kind of significant way, whether it is to be kind of the emblematic man of the house, mm-hmm. uh, which I definitely get the sense is a very kind of heteronormative, traditional relationship he has with his wife, Tracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his kind of role in the entire event of the film is so shocking and terrifying and human and it brings up a whole whack of feelings. All Mm -hmm. of these characters bring up a whole whack of feelings. Yeah. 
I feel like Mills is a character that I saw quite differently on the rewatch since the first time I saw it, which was probably uh, the late 90s or so. I don't think I'd seen it since then. But, you know, at the time, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, old cop, young cop, black cop, white cop, you know, like uh, they're, they're opposites and they're like really stereotypical mm-hmm. uh, duo um, who are so different, but they find a common ground and the blah, 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 blah. But this time when I was watching it, I was like, I remember feeling a chill about Mills that just... This guy carries a gun mm-hmm. in the city, and a lot of cops, I think, are like Mills. And I, and I got this chill that, about how representative that probably is of the behavior and temperament and ideology of modern law enforcement. And that's creepy. And I think, you know, it's interesting because in reading the film um, and reading about the film, they talk about, you know— they're kind of – Mills and Somerset meet and they're at odds. Mm-hmm. They're at odds at the way to do things, at the way to approach things. Yeah, right off the bat. You know, very typical of this kind of film. Mm-hmm. And then it's like – and then almost all these articles refer to them becoming friends, finding common ground, doing something. Mm-hmm. And as I watched this film and as I thought about it, their common ground is Tracy. Mm-hmm. You know, Mills – I assume loves his wife, is very, like, traditional. I'm the husband. You're the wife. You're a pretty blonde teacher. That's yep. great. Yep. And – for Somerset, he, you know, forms a connection with this nice lady who also seems very lonely and very scared of the city mm-hmm. and invites him over for dinner and um, they have that pleasant night. And then she confides in him later on in another scene that she's pregnant and she doesn't know if she wants to keep this baby because of the world that she's seen around her. Mm-hmm. Again, that's why the death of Tracy works so well because that's the kind of one thing tying them both together yeah. is this kind of like pure goodness seemingly uh-huh. that she has or this honesty this innocence that she has and that's what's kind of that's where they see each other on kind of an even playing field they mm-hmm. both respond to her and then her death winds up just breaking them mm-hmm. you know and and, and you know it's felt by both of them yes. very very hard and yeah i think you're right i feel like she kind of represents really uh, like a fundamental goodness, a capital G goodness, whereas Mills and Somerset are both good men, but they have very different ideologies about how to go about the greater good, about how to serve the city, about how to live their lives and stuff. But but they're, they're both attracted to the noble aspects of goodness, and those are really manifested in Tracy and... Yeah. And I think, you know, this film, you know, I would call it a detective film, a police procedural, something like that. But in many ways, it isn't. This film works so hard to set that those things up intentionally mm-hmm. and then completely subvert them in the second half. And as I want to do in these episodes, I did a bit of reading about the legacy of detective fiction. And essentially, in many ways, these narratives serve to preserve and maintain a status quo uh-huh. and a belief in justice. Mm-hmm. And if anything, I think this film goes, what are those concepts? Yeah. Can we be beholden to them? Who should be beholden to them? How can we as human beings with feelings and relationships and ties to this world you know, defend them yeah. in a meaningful way. And is it possible? Is there any point? And I and I think that actually, you know, I got <laughs> I got a bit lucky when I when I watched this film because I, I did a quick check and it's playing on Netflix Canada right okay. now. So I, I set it all up and I was sitting down with my partner to watch it and the little descriptor came up because I pressed play and then paused it so we could like grab <laughs> our popcorn and sit down. Okay. And this is how Netflix 
Canada, anyway, describes the warning around this film. Like, the warning, you okay. know, people be aware that this film contains. Oh, uh, be aware that this film contains grisly afterviews of bizarre killings and violence. Hmm. And I thought afterviews is such a perfect word. It is for this film because all you're feeling is the echo of uh-huh. violence throughout this film. The way violence is felt in society, the way it's felt by the individual, yeah. and you know, we aren't seeing John Doe do these horrific things right. until the very end. And we see the way he plays Mills. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't see him kill Tracy. We don't mm-hmm. see him feed the fat man to death. Mm-hmm. We don't see him do X, Y, Z. But we are left with the crime scenes of them. And it is up to us in our brain to kind of fill in uh, those essences. We don't even really know the victims. We don't get to hear like, you know, no. this is this yeah. is Greg and he dealt drugs and he was a pedophile. Uh-huh. Uh, but he, you know, has a moment of redemption. He has a moment of this. He is just kind we of labeled. sorry for him. We yeah. care about his survivors. He is labeled. Yeah. He doesn't have a moment of repent no. except for, you know, when he, you know, shockingly comes alive again. And then you have that terrifying moment, you know, when they when they take that victim in particular to the hospital and they say, will he live or, you know, what's going to happen uh-huh. to him? And, you know, they're like, he basically just has hell waiting for him. Yeah. Terrifying. Terrifying. Fucking There's terrifying. a lot of really offhand remarks in this film that are so dark, <laughs> so dark that I only picked up on the rewatch. You know, I think one of them that comes to mind was a cop just whispered in someone's ear, you had this coming. And that cop was like, he's nobody. You know, he's not a character. He's not – I don't even think we ever see him again. But it just represents this ideology, this 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 attitude, this urban uh, – this urban ick that is seeped into every cell of us when we see enough ugly shit. Yeah, that we are allowed to pass judgment. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the line for me that really stuck out in terms of – Maybe not overt darkness, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, it's really resonated with me is when Mills is, you know, talking about how I want this case. I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. And Somerset says, I believe, to the police chief, he's too young for this. Yeah. And it's like, oh. I mean, I'm only in my mid-30s, so hopefully I've got some more time left. But I even feel that now when I see people in their 20s and I'm like and taking on stuff, taking on really big fucking shit. And yeah, I'm just yeah. like. Oh, I wish you the best, but this is this is be going so to age hard. you. I will see you on the other side, and you will be changed. <laughs> I say that to people when they go to see Uncut Gems. <laughs> Brilliant movie. It will age you. <laughs> so the seven deadly sins—they don't actually appear in the Christian Bible. Did you know that? Based on my research for this episode, I did know okay. that. So yeah, they kind of came about as uh, as counterpoints to. Um, the main virtues extolled in the, uh, in the in the Christian Bible, as well as Christian philosophers and schools of thought that came out of that, and they're kind of they're understood to be exaggerations or abuses of one's natural faculties of passion. So, eating is normal. Overeating is gluttony. Reproducing is normal. Enjoying it too much is lustful. So, here are the seven deadly sins and the virtues their uh, their their counterpart there is pride which is the biggest baddest and worst one and the virtue corresponding to that is humility there's greed charity lust chastity envy and gratitude gluttony and temperance wrath and patience and sloth and diligence ugh those virtues sound exhausting <laughs> they sound like um 
chastity, gratitude, and temperance. They sound like a plaque that you would see in your, like, mother-in-law's kitchen, like, cross-stitched to... Or some social media influencers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Live, life, love, patience, (laughs) diligence, and chastity. (laughs) And I think really for our purposes here and the way I watch this film and, you know, for all of you out there, feel free to disagree with me. But these seven deadly sins or the seven virtues are, you know, things we all inhabit Mm -hmm. at any given point in our day, week, year, life, what have you. And so they're just so general. Mm -hmm. They're so general. And in the way they are displayed in this film, it serves to kind of, these sins are something that this film hangs a lot of things on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a lot of general stuff, a lot of the things that are perceived to be bad Mm -hmm. in the world. And they are perceived to be bad by one singular person um, in this case, even though society would condemn many of these actions. Mm -hmm. But you know, for John Doe, these are the things that cannot be felt. They cannot exist. They cannot be tolerated. Mm-hmm. And and in many ways, I think, you know, these sins are a bit of a MacGuffin to talk about so much else that is going on in society and the people who take issue with it, the people who don't take issue with it, how we take issue with it. You know, Somerset wouldn't necessarily stand any of these people who died, but I doubt he would you know, agree to this kind of punishment. You know, if he believes in law and order, then, you know, you apprehend these people and then you put them on trial and you put them to justice. This is, you know, the law unmitigated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up uh, the law because, you know, there's crime and there's punishment and he's a detective and he upholds the law. Some of these are, you know, like, no, all of them. They're kind of, uh, there's no law against lust. Well, unless you're acting on that lust in a, hmm, bad example. But (laughs) my point remains that these are kind of like character flaws, you know? They're the kind of things that we want to be better people so we work on ourselves. They're Mm. not, uh, like you said, they're against um, a generally agreed upon moral code, if not criminal code. Yeah, and I think for the example of lust, you know, I've seen such a – I've seen such a turn in the last few years about uh, making sex work legal. Yes. Um, you know, and, and providing sex workers with rights and unions and mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff because people want to have sex. That's right. They, they want to feel something, they want to engage in it. And how can you make it safer, mm-hmm. uh, better? How can everyone get paid fair? Like, how can this all work in a, you know, mode that is beneficial to yeah. everyone yeah. and doesn't come at the cost of our humanity? Mm-hmm. So when I was doing research on this, I I kind of assumed that I would want to dive deep into the seven deadly sins. You know, I did a lecture on hell that kind of took me into the depths of Dante's Inferno and the different rings. And I remember in that that essay, I talked about how these sins are kind of stratified and and, and the punishments corresponded to the crimes and and, and how hell has changed in in modern years and stuff. But when I was doing research on this episode, I I actually feel, like you said, that that was just kind of really surface level. There's so much other stuff going on in this film. It's a lot more interesting to talk about. Yeah. I think the construct of this film is really interesting. Um, I I think the films that have kind of come about subsequent to this film, not necessarily the police procedurals, but another major horror franchise has really tried to ape on elements that this film brought to light. Uh-huh. And uh, there's I've, I've got a lot of notes that that have not much to do with the seven deadly sins other than what we just talked about. Yeah. And they're for me they're much more of a plot construct. 
yes. a way to say certain things in a certain way. And the crimes are really inventive. They're really terrifying and really well done. I am. I, I was gobsmacked by that. How great they are, how scary they look. And short of witnessing the crimes, the crime scenes and the gaps that your imaginations fill in, I think I think that's the real merit of this Seven Deadly Sins mm. device here. Yeah. So before I got into this article, I was trying to come up with some kind of defining thesis for my feelings about this film um, and how I felt about it and what I think it was trying to do. And I came up with this. So to preface everything else we're about to talk about, um, I think the film Seven is the construct or utilizes the construct of a procedural mystery film masking its true intentions for a film about apathy, violence, and the cost of retribution. Uh Um, And that led me into this other article, um, which we found on JSTOR. Again, that uh, we will link in the show notes. It is behind a paywall because it is JSTOR and it's one of those bullshit academia things. Uh-huh. But we will link it and hopefully you guys can find it. Check your local libraries to see if you can get access to it through there. Yeah. That's how we do but it. Like a student, you know. Or a student. Oh, God. They're so desperate for intention or to ask, you know, for you to ask them about yeah, yeah. JSTOR. Just give them a hug. <laughs> So this is a, a piece by uh, Steve Machek called Places of Horror, Fincher's Seven and the Fear of the City in Recent Hollywood Films. Mm. And it's a very interesting article. It confused me slightly when it kept referring to Jonathan Doe, uh, which Andrea pointed out to me is the name that is given on the library card yeah. that Mills and Somerset used to track him. So yeah. apologies. It's uttered once, and then it's pretty clearly John Doe. But apologies, Mr. Machek, for me making fun of you on my Instagram stories uh, for calling him Jonathan Doe. I think it's worth making fun of. I feel like Jonathan Doe is like John Doe's half-brother who's really tired of John Doe's shit. Mm-hmm. I'm Jonathan. Um, so Magic goes on to talk about the oppressive gloom and the ambient of violence that pervades this film. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about the history of cities within film and that a history of a metropolis is equal to vice. It often contains artifice, a city does. And a city often contains as well pleasure as construction. So mm. it's not true pleasure. It's not true enjoyment. It's not true fulfillment. It's all a construct. It's yeah. something you can buy, something that's transactional, something that you interchange yeah. to get. Um, and that for Magic, Seven really deals with the city as hell. And even though we haven't kind of gotten into Dante's rings of hells, his circles of hells, I, I think this unnamed city we are in is mm-hmm. hell. And this, you know, these two men are just circling the drain, kind of going deeper and deeper and further and further down this hellhole. Cool. I like that. Yeah. I really like how this film really takes pains not to name the city. uh It's everywhere when you start looking for it, that on the cab, it's just like metro. They always refer to the city here and there and upstate. Yeah. You're thinking it's maybe New York or – but then they start driving at the end of the film and you're in like – The desert. Oh my, Yeah, right? It feels very deserty. So I, I like the kind of – It's everywhere. It's every city. It's yeah. any city. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the point. Exactly. So Magic goes on to say that we often go – 
to rather elaborate lanes to drown out this noise, to avoid this noise, to block it out, and that Mills and Somerset are unable to. And he also brings up this really interesting point, which um, alludes back to Dante, and I know that because I saw your lecture at Salem Horror Fest, oh. so I'm informed. And Matchek, without going into a lot of specific examples, mentions that the city, the city this film is set in, is very labyrinth-like. Yes. And that's something that Dante alludes a lot to in the Inferno. Yeah. You know. And it struck me because as I was watching it with my partner, it's, I believe, the scene where they get called to the second murder where the the attorney is murdered and agreed. Yeah. agreed. Mm-hmm. And there is, I would say, honestly, probably a 15 to 30 second shot of Brad Pitt walking through hallways to yeah. get to the crime scene. Uh-huh. And Danny was sitting there next to me and he just went, why is why like he loves the film but he was like why is that scene there why and I was like because they're in a fucking labyrinth I didn't say that at the time but when I read it I was like Uh holy shit ding 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 yeah and so there are these extra scenes within the film that kind of go to show these men working their way through like either large spaces or um, doing things you know Morgan Freeman walking through the library doing all these like little seemingly mundane tasks that Possibly other films would have edited out mm-hmm. or at least shortened. And you feel the length of the city, the, the impenetrableness. The yeah. Mm-hmm. That even within buildings, within contained spaces, they're yeah. just endless. Yeah. And whatever you find at the end of your walk is a fucking horror show. Yeah. They also spend a lot of time in in, in cars and in mm-hmm. cabs. And there's, like, exposition happening in cabs that I feel like in most police procedurals or, indeed, episodes of Law & Order, they'd be walking and talking. And yes. th- that's even called a walk and talk, yeah. isn't it? Like, that, yeah. that, 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 that's a thing. But here, you know, like, it's pouring, pissing rain, and they're cabbing everywhere, and everything is just inconvenient. Yeah. It's it's like the city is man-made, but it's not for humanity. No. It, it's built to house us, but it's not built to feed us or save us or uh-huh. comfort us or do anything. And as a city girl my whole life, I don't truly believe that about cities, but that's the way this film sets it up. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of crime. Um I just think it's a very interesting scene when uh, Mills and Somerset first meet. And, and I find it interesting because in the audio, I found I could barely hear them mm. because it's pouring rain so hard. Mm-hmm. So I was just watching their actions. And it's, you know, they're outside walking kind of an underpass. And it's pissing rain. And Somerset is walking up ahead kind of being like, oh, my God, you're my fucking new partner. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm off in like seven days. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> Get it? Seven days. Oh, shit. I didn't catch that. Good job. Seven days. Uh, he has till retirement. And, you know, Mills is kind of running after him to be, you know, the keener guy who's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to follow in your footsteps. I'm going to yeah, do yeah. all this stuff. He's bumping into people and weaving his way through them. And he looks like disgusted yeah, yeah. by the people he is encountering, you know, whether they are homeless, whether they have a kind of um, issues going on in their own lives. He, he seems, you know, disgusted that mm-hmm. these people are there and they are around him. Mm-hmm. You know, I think ultimately this film really takes pains to show that these detectives, or peacekeepers or, you know, the people who we rely on when we sleep to keep us safe, or some of us do anyway. Certainly I have that privilege of, you know, thinking the cops will keep me safe, which I think as we now all know, if we didn't already before, that is not the case. Mm -mm. And uh, there are some real issues in law enforcement. It's it's more the case for us than for most. Yes. Um, But that they are fallible. And I have 
you know, some some thoughts that we're again we're going to get to when we talk about the ending, about the kind of final quote that this film ends on. Yes. But you know, Magic goes on to talk about the conservative cinematic representation of the urban landscape. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before in this podcast about how you know the suburbs, the growth of the suburbs, were about the middle class, mm-hmm. particularly the white middle class at you know a certain period of time, really fleeing urban areas because of the perception of sex, drugs, violence, all the things you don't want your kid around, God forbid. And, you know, Machek goes on to kind of, you know, quote and bring in several other scholars who say that these quote-unquote flawed outcomes of urbanization or of a city are not because of the people within them, but because of a flawed capitalistic structure. One of the people he cites, William Schneider, argues that fleeing the cities is for a private, exclusive existence. They are able to buy their way out of the city and not have to engage with it. Interesting. and that as, you know, a capitalist society, we are, you know, stacking people on top of each other. We are, you know, condemning the people who cannot pay their bills, who cannot, you know, afford to live in a city right now. And, you know, certainly in Toronto, we're having that discussion again uh-huh. and again about affordable rent, um, affordable housing, how we help people in this city who need our help the most. And that this kind of fear is propagated by people who want to keep us scared, who want to make us fearful of, you know, the person who is clearly going through um, a mental health episode mm-hmm. when we should actually figure out the best way to help that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think this film, I, I think in this film does, you know, kind of skirts the line of presenting that fearful conservatism, mm-hmm. while also pointing to that's not the answer. The answer is far darker and scarier than, you know, that. What's the answer? I think that someone who is white, who is rich, who is well-educated, all things they prescribe to John Doe mm-hmm. will cause the most havoc in our society. Mm-hmm. I, I think it presents, again, if we uh, to use that term MacGuffin again, it presents, you know, the seven deadly sins, the, the sin of urbanization, mm-hmm. you know, this fear of each other. That's the MacGuffin. That's not the real fear. The real fear is the fucking white man mm-hmm. who is educated and angry mm-hmm. and rich and has the disposable income and time to make his desires come to life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, in the last week, I have been reading a lot of stuff about how Mike Bloomberg is going to buy the U.S. presidency in 2020. (sighs) And I was just thinking about that a lot. And and I think, you know, this dark, dank city isn't the issue. Mm -hmm. It's the people who have the time and resources to seek their exact vengeance. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think, you know, John Doe is a very complicated figure because as we mentioned, the people who are the victims, the people who die from these sins, I think some of them are, you know, I drug dealing pedophile is not a good person. Probably not a very good person, but a, a sex worker yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with being a sex worker. Right. If anything, they should have more rights and more protection. Being vain as a woman, mm-hmm. you know what fucking society does to us? Well, you, our dear listeners, know because we rant about it all the time. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just it's a very myopic view. And I think my the fear I get from this film is that myopic view with the resources controlling the narrative. Yeah. So 
Prior to recording this, I had seen on social media um, you posted a kind of a little like a little video of you flipping through your research notes. Yes, and I saw among your notes an article by Christopher Sharrett called "The Problem of Saw: Torture Porn and the Conservatism of Contemporary Horror Film." Yes, and I read it. I didn't really get that much out of it. Um, but you seem to have, so I'm very curious to hear what you have to say because I immediately pulled Saw and the Saw franchise. That was a franchise we were alluding to earlier mm-hmm. as, you know, indebted in some level to this film, possibly the next evolution of mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, so please, please. Now, I read this article and I was like, this guy, he's got this view of torture porn. One of these days we're going to do a torture porn episode. We will. I can't wait. Because, I mean, I'm a bit of a uh, – not an apologist. I don't think there's anything to apologize no. for. I think, you know, if you're a horror fan, you've obviously already kind of met with criticisms that your tastes are low and twisted and, you know, maybe there's something not right with you or whatever. And, like, I forget who said it. I wish I had the direct quote. But somebody called horror, like, the pornography of violence or something like that. Like, that's that's in my brain somewhere. And so I think, you know, it, speaking of destigmatizing sex and desire, porn, you know, is something that we look at for for for, for titillation, for, for uh, a sense of personal gratification. And I think there is still stigma attached to that. And when you say torture porn, you sound like, you know – um, the kind of person who gets off somehow mm-hmm. on uh, on seeing that kind of violence, and I think that's kind of reductive. And there's there's implications in there that I don't necessarily agree with. But what was interesting to me that came out of that article was this idea of like a serial killer as a right wing vigilante. Mm-hmm. And so this article essentially compares Seven to the Saw franchise, where Jigsaw is teaching good old-fashioned morality through torture and murder. Yes. And um, Sharit likens that to a parody of the Bush administration, stuff that was going on at the time. But the thing is, with this article, like, he really – he bashes – Saw. I don't think Saw is high cinema, but I think it was. I, I remember the first time I saw it, and I, I found it really interesting that mm. it was exploring these this moral philosophy. And uh, Sharit really fucking hates it, and not only for being torture porn, which he abhors, but also for furthering right wing propaganda, and that Jigsaw is right wing, and that he yearns for a more conservative traditional society. In later installments, Jigsaw he's presented as this really jilted middle class white male professional who is robbed of his nuclear family when his pregnant wife is murdered as she works in a clinic for drug addicts. <gasps> yes. Can oh you my imagine? goodness. Can you imagine? So, I mean, that's I have tried to watch this entire franchise and make sense of it. And remember when they were all on Netflix? This was like yep. several years ago. And I was sick in bed one day and being like, you know what? I'm muddy on the details. I'm going to sort all this shit out. And God help me, I could not. Nope. Um, so I'm not going to defend it being a good, cohesive bit of cinematic literature. I'm not going to do that. But insofar as being right wing, um, what was interesting to me about this article is that Jigsaw is the villain. And so if you're going to make the argument that Saw is, you know, that it contains right-wing propaganda, yes. Is it is the film in itself right-wing propaganda? I have to say no because he is the villain. So again, like bringing that back to um, to Seven and actually to something else, it reminded me of when I fell in love with Alan Moore's uh, The Watchmen. Oh, yes. 
I thought Rorschach was such an interesting character. He was such a dark and brooding anti-hero, and he has these internal monologues mm-hmm. that are so fucking salty and bitter that, you know, he believes that society deserves to crumble because it is so morally bankrupt. And I was like, ah. Oh fucking right man like I feel that way sometimes I feel that bitterness I feel that nihilism and I thought he was so badass and I remember the first time I saw him referred to online as right wing I was blown away that I could relate to a right wing ideology because I see myself as so left of center I was astonished that I could relate um, to a character that was designed to exemplify the far right like that and it was such a big learning moment for me that the two standpoints aren't the polar opposites that they always appear to be that you can have leftist beliefs but want to go about them in a right-wing manner and vice versa so here (laughs) finally coming back to seven we have John Doe and he's fed up with the moral decay of modern society. He wants to punish people. He wants to make an example of people to show the world that we've lost our way and that we must return to traditional moral, inside brackets, Christian values. Mm -hmm. But does that make Seven a right-wing movie? I don't think so for the reasons I stated earlier. On on some level, maybe just watching it kind of one-off, you would be left with that impression. I think this film asks you to bring a bit more of yourself into it because it shows how fallible our humanity and more specifically our morals are. And, um, you know, I think John Doe, again, as I mentioned, who is rich, white, and educated. Those Uh are his descriptors ascribed to him by this film. He looks down on the people who he is harming. He wants to, this is Old Testament shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is retribution at its core. Whereas if you're truly, I believe, Christian and good or not Christian and you're just good and you want to make a change in this world, don't murder the shitty lawyer. You work with, you know, legal aid. Mm-hmm. You either donate or see how you can help and, you know, get justice or, or justice for people who really need it and are fighting and need help. His villainness is so right wing and, and I can't see it otherwise. I think Saw, I can see that label of being right wing and conservative attached to it more because – Pure horror, let's call it that, which I would say, you know, Saw falls into, Mm -hmm. is also part of the lineage that has, you know, Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, you know, all of these kind of villains who have reached iconic status more so than their victims Mm -hmm. um, or even the people who survive them. So I think there is a bit of a lineage in horror of rooting for the bad guy, Mm -hmm. rooting for the monster, which you can trace all the way back to universal monsters of these true monsters who were monsters because they were different not because they were bad. Right. Horror brings out some really fucking tricky emotions. It does. And, you know, I, I think to your point, the amount of times I've taken public transit here in Toronto and it's so packed and someone isn't moving to, like, the back of the bus or doing something and I have, like, a horrible thought. Mm-hmm. And it's like, John Doe's doing that. He's just yeah. acting more on it. And feeling entitled to act on it. And that is, like, it is such a function of privilege. And I feel like, you know, we talk about a film is feminist when it challenges the patriarchy. I feel like that's kind of like our our baseline definition of, you know, when we make these inquiries and, and you know, we, we discuss these issues. But fundamentally, I feel like that's where we land. And so I think to read Seven and to read it as um, – 
as right wing is to place yourself with John Doe under the microscope. And I didn't Google Christopher Charrett. I don't know if he's a white male. I suspect that he is. You know, when I see this film, I feel like it is representing the danger of that kind of privilege, that kind of entitlement, that kind of all those sins, like the hubris and the wrath and the entitlement. Well, I mean, for as much as, you know, Mills and Somerset talk about the time it would take, you know, John Doe to uh, plan this out, to do it, all of these notebooks he's written, et cetera, Uh et cetera, et cetera. The money. The money. It takes more time to actually make a change in this world rather than to make an example of someone representative of a community. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's uh, it's something this film kind of dances around, but I think it's part of it. Yeah. It's part of this ecosystem. I think the white male rage that we're seeing in John Doe is the danger. It is the monster. It is not an anti-hero. It is the fear. It is the mm. fear that we're seeing reflected. Well, and, and think about who are the two most violent characters in this film. Mm-hmm. John Doe and Mills. And Mills. There's a conversation early on in the film where, you know, Somerset says he's, you know, pulled his gun but never used it. Yeah. Mills says he's pulled he it. Has. And he has used it. Interesting. Um, then, of course, you see him, you know, when unbeknownst to the audience, perhaps, John Doe appears as the photographer and Mills flies off the fucking handle yep. screaming at him. Yep. And other instances where he's like really, you know, mad or short or, you know, does something. And it's like, whew, I felt my whole fucking body tense in those moments mm-hmm. because I've been in those. And you're just like, what the fuck is he going to do next? Yeah. Because it might be like he's blowing off some steam or he's going to like fucking turn around and do something it really could heinous. be anything. And what's interesting to me is is one of the questions I've had about this film is how could and maybe and I believe he didn't John Doe know that Mills was going to be the key to rounding out his kind of plan because Mills is new he's new to this police force he's blah 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 and I think he was kind of skirting around this case to find like the weak in the herd. Yeah. And so that's why I think the uh, the photography scene is so important because uh-huh. you see that flash of wrath. Yeah, you yeah. see that turn to anger yeah, so yeah. quickly. No, no, just get the fuck out of here. This, you know, call someone, let's get, like, get him out of here. Yeah. It's like he fucking goes after yeah, him. Yeah, And, um... That's all he needed to know. That's all he needed to know. But, you know, on the same hand, it's interesting because I think John Doe, even though he never technically kills anyone, mm-hmm. much like Jigsaw, mm-hmm. he is, he precipitates their deaths. Mm-hmm. He makes them happen. And... For me, John Doe would be far more in line with dying due to the sin of wrath because, to me, that's what he has. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately in my discussion and thinking about this film, the true terror of Seven is about our ability as humans to transform. John Doe can play his card of I'm transforming into envy because I envy your simple silly, happy little life mills. And then by pushing him that extra mile with, you know, his wife's head in a box, uh-huh. Mills turns to wrath yeah. so quickly when even though that kind of part of his mind that knows if he kills him, he's giving in. That's right. But he wants it so bad. Somerset even has a chance to get all that out. I love that scene where you've got Somerset in one ear being like, don't do it, man. Don't do this it. This is exactly what he wants. But then in his other ear, he hears the narrative he wants to hear, the one where I can be the hero and I can control this and I have a gun in my hand and I can use it to make everything right. And actually to that point, I think that's another you know check in the box for this film isn't conservative because 
Mills acts famously on that instinct, on that need to fucking right that fucking wrong mm-hmm. that was fucking done to him because I'm a fucking man, yeah. uh, frankly. He is not carried off by his colleagues on their shoulders being like, rah, rah, Mills, you got that fucking, like, killer. No. Uh, he's head down in the back of a police car. Yeah. Unknown fate. I mean, his career is over, I have to assume. And and that's kind of the beauty of John Doe's final kill was that, you know, he was able to take down, um, yes, a lawyer, yes, a prostitute, yes, a this and yes, a that. But he was able to turn one of the city's heroes, one of one of undisclosed city's <laughs> finest and make him an example. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Of our fallibility, of yeah. we can't ignore our personal histories, our own biases, everything else, you know, when we are put into situations like this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of many cat groups on the old Facebook, and every uh-huh. so often a post will come up being like, woman murders roommate after roommate dismembers woman's cat. What? Like, someone harms someone's animal and they murder that person. Oh. Right? And... Let me tell you, if someone ever puts their fucking hands on one of my fucking cats, I will end them. Little little tiny box with a little tiny nope. cat head in it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dante's like, it's not fucking funny, Mom. Shut right up. So the subject of white male rage, this whole fear of losing status in a changing country where white male privilege isn't what it used to be, it, it's, it's, it, it permeates this film that was made in 1995, but it's also, it's also pretty hot right now, mm. isn't it? Mm. You know, I think that's largely thanks to one Donald Trump who not only epitomizes it, he mobilizes it and mm. actively perpetuates it and it benefits him. And, um, and I think that's part of the reason we're seeing that trope come up again and again lately. You know, this this sudden refascination with Charles Manson. We've got the Irishman. We've got Joker. We've got all these 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 figures being celebrated. The cinematic tradition of white male characters who are just fed up with democracy, determined to set their own rules. And you know, I think white female rage had a moment too. Definitely with post Me Too. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a thing, and um, I don't like it. No, it's um, it's terrifying because I think it puts, as we've already kind of alluded to in this episode, the power in the individual. And I think Donald Trump's rhetoric certainly mobilizes and is obtuse enough that allows people to mobilize around it for their own means. Mm-hmm. And it's often thinking of one set of needs over the needs of many. Mm-hmm. And that's really scary. It's really scary because we are, I think, continually at the mercy of us as humanity, as a community. And mm-hmm. we, I think, more and more think of ourselves less as a community and more of the individual. It's easy to think of ourselves and the individual or our immediate family or our immediate friend circle as those are the needs that matter. This is, you know, I get me too when something happens to a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I don't hear it and I immediately think, whoa, there's a real fucking fucked up power dynamic. I need to experience it in my own life mm-hmm. for it to have meaning rather than, you know, taking people at their word and, and hearing them and experiencing some empathy. That's right. And that actually dovetails nicely into a sociological concept that I wanted to bring up. Oh. 
Bring it. Okay. So this is something I feel like I might have brought it up briefly in an episode before, but it really applies here. And the concept is called anomie, uh, and that's spelled A-N-O-M-I-E. It's a French term, so I'm pronouncing it that way. It sounds a lot better in French, anomie, just <laughs> But it was a term coined by French sociologist Emile Durkheim, who was a foundational thinker in the functionalist school of thought. If you took sociology, you took functionalism, you took Marxism, and you took... Uh, another one that I forget, but you definitely took Durkheim. <laughs> and anomie refers to a condition of instability due to a breakdown of norms and standards. It's a sense of being lost due to a sense of normlessness. Durkheim, at the time, he was studying suicide, and he found that when people don't feel connected to one another's foundational values, they experience a kind of emotional emptiness and they despair and they give up and that that was that was a cause of suicide and I remember when I was learning this in sociology I, I really loved this concept partly because as a sociologist a lot of people don't really understand what sociology is and how it differs from psychology and I always thought the concept was kind of lovely because it, it proves that we need one another mm-hmm. and you know psychology will delve into the needs of the individual but fundamentally we need one another We need to be in agreement with one another. We need to feel like we're part of something and that we all agree that certain things are right and wrong. I should clarify before somebody uh, somebody who knows Durkheim better than I do corrects me that the term – he used the term to refer to groups of people and uh, – other writers in the functionalist school of thought since then have applied the concept on an individual level. I'm of the opinion that on the individual level, it makes more sense in this day and age where we're kind of splintered, we're kind of fragmented, uh, traditional forms of community are are being replaced in favor of being online and you find your tribe and you find your echo Mm -hmm. chamber. Maybe you don't know your next door neighbor, but you have tons of Facebook friends who think like you and kind uh, kind of support your beliefs. When we're scrolling through Facebook and we see our so-called quote-unquote friends post stupid shit, it rankles us on, on, on a fundamentally deep level. When we feel disconnected from society, we feel vulnerable to a system that we can't understand. And I think Seven and, by extension, Saw and a bunch of other movies that feature this white male rage, they're tapping into the idea of anomie and the danger that could occur when someone externalizes that rage rather than internalizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you brought up um, an interesting word just now, which I hadn't really thought about, is the notion of despair. Despair. It's interesting that despair isn't really one of the seven deadly sins. No. You're supposed to keep the faith, right? You're supposed to uh, persevere. It is interesting that despair and then the virtue of perseverance, maybe if the Bible had been written now. Maybe. But, you know, I think this is something we are still grappling with. And it's, you know, there there is an importance to, you know, finding your tribe and, you know, doing all those great things RuPaul talks about. Mm-hmm. But it does... And there's a safety in it. And I think some of us need that safety, some more than others, truly, in some communities. Um, But I think for those with more privilege and more power, we need to practice empathy Mm -hmm. um, at a really, you know, you know, from surface level to a really deep down level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if you're open to it, you will find things in your everyday life that challenge your assumptions about your own ability to be empathetic Mm -hmm. and to understand Mm -hmm. and to push yourself towards that understanding. And for me, this, this film is so much about apathy. 
Mm-hmm. And and that, I mean, it really, really crystallizes in the two figures of Somerset and John Doe, mm-hmm. who I, I feel very much are, you know, two sides of the same coin. That's right. Oh, the film drives that home, I think. Yeah. And, you know, Somerset, when we meet him, he is, you know, he does clearly still care. He wants to ask the questions of the first crime scene he's on, but he's basically told to shut up, yeah. old man. Um, and he's he, on his way out. And even though he's on his way out, he goes to the library and he reads up about the sins and he, like, highlights stuff and, you know, drops Mills a note saying, you're going to want to read up on X, Y, and Z. So, of course, um, you know, Mills gets the... You know, Cole's notes delivered to him by someone else. He's ashamed of it. Uh, Stupid bro. But he still cares, but he's still trying to find his own way out. And he wants this to be his last case. But, you know, halfway through the film, he says he's going to stay on as long as it takes to kind of get this all sorted out. When he makes that decision, that's actually where the film as a police procedural begins to end and it turns into something else. I mean, we haven't seen before and I don't think we've really seen since because, you know, there is the encounter that um, through Somerset's, you know, investigation into the library, they clue into, well, let's look up. Let's look up who's took who's taking these books out. Yeah, which oh my gosh, that got so my good. little academic in me so fucking hard. The library was so analog. Yeah, right. And it's it, it, Somerset is an analog guy. It takes mm-hmm. pains to show that you know he's picking the lint off his jacket and he gets all dressed up and spiffy and he's uh, he's old school. And he's the only one to come out of this narrative morally intact. Mm-hmm. And I think, drawing from what you said, he's going to stay on to see this thing through. But then when all that shit goes down and he's asked, you know, like, where are you going to go? And he says something to the effect of, I'll be around. Because it, he knows he can't leave. He can't leave now. He can't leave because he's he still, he still cares. And insofar as he was close to maybe a sense of despair, a sense of retreat, a sense of I've paid my dues and done what I can and I'm no good to it anymore, I think, you know, he, he has to be there for Mills. And I think ultimately, um, you know, had Mills not been subsumed by wrath, mm-hmm. had he you know, made the choice to not do that, then Somerset might have been able to walk away. Yeah. But there is still a place for this analog, older gent yeah. who just it needs him. Yeah. And he sees how clearly he is needed. And it's not because anyone comes up to him and says, look at everything that happened. We still need you. He just sees it and he internalizes it and moves forward. And by the same respect, you know, John Doe is the violent version of Somerset. He enacts his vengeance, his retribution on the so-called wrongs and ills of the world that he sees around him to correct them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is something very chilling about that because he is apathetic to needs beyond his own, to Mm -hmm. the right that he sees seemingly so clearly. But as we've already, you know, talked about in a couple instances, if you think them through a bit more clearly, the sins are so so deeply systemic that they are hard to escape. And one butchery of, you know, a rash of butcheries is not going to solve this. Mm -hmm. And it's so endemic mm-hmm. into this world and our society and the way we view other people. And 
you know, ultimately, I, I think as much as John Doe wants to be on his high horse, you get at the sense of the film, the end, as he's monologuing a bit more, that it's more about him. Mm-hmm. It's less about, you know, I want to show how fucked up this world is. And it's more like, I want to be fucking remembered. Yep. Often, if you want to be remembered, you want people to pick up um, the mantle. You want them to do the same shit. And that's something, from what I understand, of the Saw films. Because, again, um, I've tried. I've tried with them. And I think there is value to them. But I am, I'm a bit lost in some of the narrative. One but day. One day. Um, but there is a huge part of those that franchise that is about people picking up the mantle of Jigsaw yep. and carrying it on. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, morality is such delicate thing and it deserves to be challenged it deserves you know you should be put in those situations where you think fuck what what am i doing what are the people around me doing why Mm -hmm. not just what but why are they doing it and oftentimes you'll find a much more human answer than you would have expected yeah so i think it's interesting that the hero and the villain are very much two parts of it and while john doe may go on to be remembered by, you know, various people, Somerset is kind of an indentured servitude. Yeah. He is also carrying on, but in, you know, remembrance of himself, a remembrance of what he brings yeah. to this. Because this case, as you see, you know, it's a little on the nose, but when he takes the metronome that lulls him to sleep and throws it, you know, across the floor, breaking it, yeah. it's definitely a moment of like, oh, you know, the rules are out. He can't numb this anymore. He actually right. has to participate. And his participation still doesn't save the day. Mm-hmm. And even his fidgeting, I remember when he starts throwing his knife, you know, there's mm-hmm. his pocket knife, which again is just kind of an analog. Of course, he carries a gun, but he always keeps that pocket knife. Again, he never uses it for anything violent, per se. No. He blows off some steam with the dartboard. He uses it to open the box. It's just a handy old school tool. And insofar as he has maybe given up on the city, he hasn't given up on the system. He hasn't given up on the fight. And so he sticks around. Yeah. And the use of the system is very interesting, particularly into the moments we were referring to where uh, they, you know, Somerset is on to the FBI tracking certain books being taken out. yeah. And so they use that to track John Doe. And he pays for that. Even that system is corrupt. He pays for it. And then when, you know, Mills breaks down the door and is like, well, fuck it. We need to see what's going on in here. And then they pay some person who is, you know, let's say not using the most legal of substances, (laughs) um, you know, with whatever cash they have on them to say, oh, I called it in. And uh, Mills says to uh, her, I believe, you know, go go spend that on food. You spend that on food now. Yeah. 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 Fuck yeah, you. Yeah. She's going to spend it on whatever the hell she wants. Oh, God. I hear that all the time. I hear that. Like, I, I, I feel like I've seen that on social media where it's like, you know, if you see a homeless person, you can give them some food. Because if you give them money, they're just going to spend it on drugs. It's so icky. And it just it, – it, it takes the notion of kindness and it, it, it puts this moral judgment into exactly. it. It's so gross. And again, that morality will fucking bite you in the ass every fucking time. It's got to be a fluid concept. And the times are changing, and they're changing faster than ever. And I think it's what keeps Anomi relevant. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you, but I very much like to talk about the ending. Let's. So as we alluded to earlier in this episode, uh, Fincher, Pitt, 
um, Freeman, they all had to fight collectively for the ending to be preserved that Andrew Kevin Walker wrote in the original script. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Kevin Walker was very much, you know, a a young screenwriter. This was his first feature that was bought, and the studio was like, we really like this, but we hate the ending. you got to do something else. So, as we mentioned, Fincher only signed on because he accidentally got sent the earlier version of the script. Um, But let's talk through some of the other endings that were either written or storyboarded and kind of presented to the creative team of like, what about this? Mm -hmm. So among the ones I found were, um, you know, after John Doe turns himself in, Mm -hmm. effectively eviscerating the kind of procedural and basically being like, I'm in control of this narrative. um, It was going to turn into a shootout for the life of Tracy. Okay. He was going to have her kidnapped, and they were going to come after them and, like, save her. Uh-huh. Um, they, there was also another ending that I believe was storyboarded that was going to happen at a church, which it was going to be revealed that John Doe attended as a child where he was um, sexually assaulted by a priest, hence making him all crazy about the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um Another version was uh, it was going to be one of uh, Mills's dog's head uh, in yep. a box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then another version was it was going to be another woman who looked like Tracy. Okay. Head in the box. Yeah, yeah. Which would have meant, you know, it still would have had Mills shooting John Doe. But yeah. at the end, it would have cut to, like, Tracy being alive with, like, this baby. Oh, it was uh, all for nothing. You're wrong. And, and that actually kind of leads back into the opening of the film, which I would like to talk a little bit about to to kind of bring us back into the ending Mm -hmm. and follow my logic Mm -hmm, here. mm So one of the things Seven is credited for is really bringing about a renaissance for the title sequence. It is a very grainy, edgy, almost, you know, over-the-top version of a title sequence. But at the time, um, you know, you were used to seeing, you know, the narrative unfold in front of you with just titles starring. Some music. Blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, starring mm-hmm. da 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 mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. the story is progressing in front of you. How this came about was um, the seven title sequence is that they were going to shoot something else and they ran out of time and they ran out of money because oh. this was a very tight budget that okay. involved Somerset looking at a home outside of the city and wanting to buy it. Uh And there is a piece of wallpaper that's kind of curling off. It's like a rose, you know, rose pattern wallpaper. And he takes it and he puts it in his pocket. And every time something goes really bad in the film, he's going to like look and hold this, you know, piece of wallpaper to remind him, this is my act. I'm out of here. Yeah. And the the titles were going to play over, you know, Somerset looking at the house and then riding back into the city and into the narrative. Mm-hmm. And then they ran out of time. It wasn't really working. And they'd shot stuff, in, you know, while they were filming of, you know, Morgan Freeman holding this piece of wallpaper or mm-hmm. fabric and, you know, holding it. And eventually that was all cut out of the film. And, you know, then they went back to, shit, we don't really have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of budget. What can we do? Mm. But they'd spent all of this money, about $15,000, on getting these journals written. Um, yes. handwritten by John Doe. Uh-huh. And this becomes, again, it, it's almost superfluous in the narrative of the film. You get to see the kind of extent of what John Doe is going through to you know, put together all these notebooks. But um, 
you know, Venture got in touch with a designer by the name of Kyle Cooper, uh, who put together, by and large, the title sequence and was like, what if we really use some of these notebooks? And mm. so that's where you get that kind of collagey, edgy, scrappy, dark mm-hmm. thing of, you know, the you know the photocopied pages, the, the fucked up images, you know, the cutting off of the fingertips. Yeah. Um, it's not just handwritten. It almost looks scratched. It's yeah. scrawled. So Kyle Cooper, you know, really is kind of an avant-garde, really important figure, especially in the graphic design world. And I actually, you know, will link the article from a really great site that I've written for as well called Art of the Title. And it really goes into the whole making of the seven title sequence because Mm -hmm. it's really, really interesting. And I interviewed Kyle Cooper for a piece for that site about all the uh, opening sequences of American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. So I'll link that in as well just so you guys can read it if you're curious. But he's a very thoughtful interested, interesting guy mm-hmm. who um, loves to create and loves to kind of fuck with it. And I think you definitely get that, you know, with uh, the remix of Closer by Nine Inch Nails playing over it. It's all very, like, fucked up and fucking edgy, but it definitely works mm-hmm. for this film. And, and um, it really, you know, when I was reading about the intended opening sequence into what it now is, it really reframes the film in my mind as this story is not really being told through the point of view of Somerset or Mills. It's being told through the perception of John Doe. And we get that from the opening you know, title sequence where we see you know, the scribbling in the notebooks. Yes. He is crafting this narrative. Yes. And while we are being presented as an audience with, it's a police procedural, you know this, blah, blah, blah. He constantly, John Doe constantly subverts this expectation yeah. to the end when he turns himself in Turning so he can him, see himself. In the door. He walks in with his fucking you know, hands up, mm-hmm. bloody fingertips so he can't be caught. But he's, he wants this to end in his way. So mm-hmm. he is in control of the narrative. So this kind of almost happy accident of the title sequence, I think actually gives us that clue. And the other clue we get throughout the whole uh, film, in my opinion, is that as we talked about this perma-rain, this perma-gloom, and after John Doe turns himself in, it starts to rain less until you're in the final sequence where it's radiating sunlight. Mm -hmm. The darkest fucking moment of this film is in pure blinding sunlight. So sit down, Midsommar, (laughs) <laughs> here is an earlier instance of that should anyone be looking for it it's this bright sunny hot it's the desert feeling. it's the hottest driest and it's, it's like the opposite of a rainy city his plan is in full view mm-hmm. it has been fully revealed as you as the audience get that sinking feeling as Somerset understands what's going on and then finally Mills understands what's going on so if we look at that kind of notion of pathetic fallacy which is a Shakespearean started around that era of um you know, the the weather reflecting the mood of the story, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, and we get a myriad of things going on in that, but ultimately it's that John Doe got his way. Yeah. And it was his story all along. All along. And one thing I do want to touch on, in, in certainly for me to wrap up, is the final lines of the film, um, which was the compromise with the studio. Yes. Because it was supposed to end with John Doe getting shot in the bang, head. Bang, bang. Game over. Done. But they agree to a couple extra scenes of the crime scene being wrapped up. um, And then it ends with a voiceover of Somerset uh, quoting Ernest Hemingway. And it's a quote from Whom the Bell Tolls. And he says, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Mm -hmm. 
which is odd because there's no other voiceover in the film. No. And voiceover is a tricky thing to have. But listen, if if you're going to, you know, you got to pick your hills to die on, as I always say. And um, this is, uh, you know, I, I think there's something interesting about this quote and the world is worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Good, bad, whatever. Yeah. It's not a fine place. No, it's the fight that matters more so than the results and the wins and the losses and the scorecard. Yeah. And I think that eases in the notion of Somerset staying on and his willingness to do something rather than concede to apathy. Yeah. Despair. I think it's a nice coda. Yeah. I enjoy it. Um, Another alternate ending that uh, I thought you might have mentioned, but you didn't, was... Somerset killing Doe. Oh, yes. Yep. Allowing Mills to continue his career. And uh, Freeman apparently liked this, but uh, but Brad Pitt thought it was out of character for Somerset. Um, and I'm not sure that I agree. I think... Um, I think it would have been interesting. I think I think Somerset is so interesting, and we're trying mm-hmm. to kind of figure him out over the course of the film. Uh, when you mentioned the rain, it occurred to me that uh, I'm a bit of a hat enthusiast. Uh, oh, yes, I, I, I like I like my hats, and um, I, I noticed that in so it's always 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 raining. Somerset always has a hat, and Mills never does. Yeah. And it's almost like I've been in the city, and I have devised a way to kind of insulate myself mm-hmm. against some of the onslaught of shit. And so, um, yeah, I think that ending would have been kind of putting an umbrella over Mills. Right. You know what I mean? Which might have been kind of lovely, but uh, well, I think I'm this, not mad. this film is very exacting, mm. and it's putting its characters through the fucking ringer. And if it, if Somerset had done it, I don't know that it would have been purely wrath. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and I think we needed that. I think we needed to see the fallibility of the way we uphold these supposed sins. Yes. You know, because we have, you know, rape revenge stories. We have all of these different things that challenge our notions of wrath and we cheer them on. Mm-hmm. And now we, you know, put ourselves in it. If someone hurts someone I care about, I don't know what I would do if I had a way to exact revenge on the person that harmed them. Yeah. You don't know what you would do. If you especially well, you would hope that you don't because that's that moral um, relativism. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about the things that Somerset shares with John Doe, I think something that Mills shares with Doe is moral absolutism. Mm. There's right and wrong and you did this and I did that and it's tit for tat and eye for an eye and like, um, you know, we hear Mills throughout the film say that oh, Doe is crazy. Mm-hmm. He's just crazy. Yes. He's just a completely different kind of human. We don't need to try to understand him. We need to lock him up. Whereas Somerset, he's all about those shades of gray. Yeah. Well, he's seen more stuff. He That's knows. right. It's not, it's not as easy. It's not. Nor should it be. And um, yeah. Yeah. That's why the way you fuck with people is to not give them what they want. Quotable quotes from <laughs> Alex West. It's going to be on the next fact t-shirt, guys. <laughs> what did you learn from the Faculty of Horror episode? Well, I learned how to fuck with people. <laughs> so that's that's seven. That's all I have to say. 
What do you guys have to say? Yeah, tell us. Let us know. Um, you can always comment on the episode posts on facultyofhorror.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, if you're part of our Patreon, um, you can always get at us through the uh, patrons-only Instagram. Lots of great chats happening in yeah. the Patreon. I didn't yes. actually expect that. I didn't expect the Patreon site itself yeah. to, to have such great discussion of the episode. Dante, don't you Speaking start. of Dante's Inferno. Not good. Um, and yeah, if you are inclined to check out our subreddit, there's great chats going on in there. <laughs> That's a bad dog, guys. I'm sorry. But we have some very exciting news. Some news you've all hopefully already heard mm-hmm. because we've been shouting it out on social media. Other people have been shouting it out on social media. But... Double tubble, double trouble. <laughs> <laughs> double trouble, toil, and something. Oh, it's trouble. It's trouble. We're bringing trouble back to Salem. Twice. Twice this year. Twice in 2020. 2020, twice, twice. We are coming back for the inaugural Women with Guts weekend, which is happening the weekend of May 8th um, in Salem. And uh, it's going to be a whole host of other really fucking cool broads who we're going to get to hang out with. Can't wait. It's going to be so cool. We're all giving, like, lectures. Faculty of Horror is going to be doing a live show on cat people. Wow. Wow. Uh, the 1942 film. So uh, if you were not able to attend, then uh, that will, of course, be our main feed episode. But those live shows are pretty fucking fun. You've got to come. And, like, I know every single year we're like, we tell people you're dying to come to Salem anyway. Any horror fan yeah. wants to check out Salem. I can understand if maybe you don't want to come in October. It's a bit of a shit show. Airbnbs <laughs> get booked up well in advance. Oh, we should book our Airbnb. Yes, we okay. should. But... Come in the spring. Mm-hmm. I'm sure New England is lovely in the spring. It's supposed to be beautiful, and we are uh, part of this weekend with a number of other amazing women, including Ashley Blackwell, mm-hmm. Sadie Doyle, Allison Alice Lang, Lang uh, Stacey Ponder, Stacey Ponder, Rebecca McEndry. So many cool people involved, and it's going to be like a really fun intersectional weekend where we're all going to get our witch on and just hang out and talk shop and talk about some really, really cool subjects. So if you are able to make it, that is amazing. And we're really excited. Tickets are available now. And I've got to say, Airbnbs in Salem and Beverly are the best I've ever been in the world. The hospitality and the properties are fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. Check out the Satanic Temple. Um... Maybe we should make a little, like, travel guide of our Ooh. favorite spots. We've been there enough now that That's we, have a great our, idea. we have our favorite okay. haunts. Yeah. Let's do that. Subscribe to our newsletter. We'll probably put it in there. Yeah, let's. Um, but then if you are like, ooh, I really want to see Salem in October, how can I do that? Well, Salem Horror Fest is, of course, back in October for, uh, I believe, two weeks. They've got a ton of great stuff already announced, including us. We're back. We're back. We do know what movie we are talking about for that, but we are not announcing it yet. But it's going to be a fucking good one, one that I think we've wanted to do for a while. So mm-hmm. really fun. And uh, we'll hopefully get some other things on the go that we'll be at and doing so you can hang out with us. But um, it's going to be that f- we will be there that first weekend in October. I believe that's the third and fourth, but it's going on for two weeks um, at least. So do check SalemHorror.com. Uh, we'll link them in the show notes. They they just they're they're wonderful people. They do so much great work. We adore them. That's why we keep going back. Yeah, that's right. 
And、uh, you know, 2020 is full steam ahead. We'll have another T-shirt drive in the coming months. So stay tuned for more information on that. But for now, what's our homework for March, Alex? Oh, do you remember Andrea? Nope. Okay.、Uh, so we are going. <laughs> it's for Andrea because we are going back. We are going way back, like over. I think over a hundred years back now, and we're going to do. Something in which Andrea, you've touched very recently、I'm、in the physical sense.、Say it. Uh, we're going to tackle some German expressionism. Oh yeah!、Uh, in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu.、Ooh. Yeah, this is something we have been meaning to do for a long time, and、um, we wanted to throw it back. We wanted to go back and delve into some of the roots of our modern cinematic horror.、Mm-hmm. Andrea was just in Berlin for、uh, the Final Girl Film Fest, which sounds wonderful.、Awesome. It was fantastic, and yeah. So we thought, what a great time! Andrea will have all of that research done. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> you know me, always so prepared.、Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. And、um, yeah, yeah, that's that's it.、Um, we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up, so please don't despair,、hmm. don't give in to apathy, no,、nope. don't give in to all that shit that the white men want you to give in to, or the really shitty white men want you to give in to. We know there are some good ones of you out there. We promise, we're involved with several of them.、Um, But until next time, office hours are closed.
So oh. 